This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, welcome to the Country Hour across South Australia and Broken Hill this Monday afternoon. I'm Cassie Hop. Soon I'm going to take you to the north of the state where even more rain has fallen over the weekend. It's cut some parcels off temporarily, but the long-term term effect will be beneficial. You know, we've got food and water and those sort of things, so uh, we're all OK like that and everyone's safe and healthy and um, yeah, there's no danger at all. So we're just, um, yeah, sitting tight for a little bit so we can get out and um, assess things a bit. We'll catch up with David Bell from Dalkanina soon. Also, a new research project is looking to provide evidence of insider trading in the water market. So we'll get into that soon as well. But while we're talking about these storms, the assessment and clean-up from the wild storms and flooding, particularly on the Eastern Air Peninsula, continues. The Primary Industries and Regional Development Minister has met with farmers and local councils across the region. David Basham says there will be resources and help for those hardest hit, but he won't commit to flood funding at this stage. On Friday, the state government declared an major emergency for 14 days with flooding and storm damage affecting parts of the state. Minister Basham says there's a long road ahead and this is just the start of discussions. It's a um, real challenge and very varied. So there's some people that have been um, you know, significantly hit, have huge uh, amounts of water lying over their places, uh, seen huge amounts of soil being moved to other places where there's been very little damage. And so it's a challenging environment. And um, you're also for just uh, in a local government perspective, just looking at the damage to the road networks and you know, how challenging that's going to be, uh, particularly moving grain and things around uh, in, over the next 12 months as they go to repair these roads. You said there about the water. Is there still a lot of water laying around? Uh, yeah, there is in parts. Um, it's certainly, uh, you can see it's slowly dissipating, but there are certainly you know, patches, particularly up the back roads. You can see water still across roads and um, areas that are cut and um, certainly... Uh, areas that are significantly you know, inundated uh, in those low-lying parts, but you know, it's gradually disappearing. But um, you know, a fair bit of damage has been done by lying there for the time it's been there. What can you do to to help out these primary producers from this point now? Well, one of the first things we want to do is get some people over here from the department and uh, work out how we can actually help them understand what they need to do. Um, so, how can you, you know? re-establish that cropping ground that's been um, covered in water and get some expert advice to them just as a key. Um, But we certainly have to have a look and see and assess the damage right across uh, the board um, to see whether there's any opportunities uh, for wider industry support. That includes funding, FUD funding and things like that? Yeah, Yeah, certainly too early to consider exactly what it is, um, but yeah, that's uh, quite possible. The South Australian government has declared a major emergency with flooding and storm damage, more for the, the north of the state, but is this something that you might be able to take back and say, look, this is what's been happening in that, on the Eastern Air Peninsula as well? Yeah, we'll certainly uh, feed in the damage that's occurred here. Um, you know, this is um, something that Perth will be working with the farming communities here, Grain Producers SA, to, uh, in particular to get the data um, of the damage. That's something that we need to... Uh, get that assessment in and um, encourage farmers to engage with uh, grain producers. So 
so that we've actually um, got that information to, to work with. Speaking with, with farmers today, have they given you an, an indication of what this is going to cost them? They actually have a huge difficulty in actually trying to work out what the, the cost of the damage is because it's so hard to assess you know, what uh, the damage is through the loss of topsoil, the movements through their properties, the damage with the water lying there. You know, it's not like a normal crop loss. It's um, future production losses that are, are, are out there that are really hard to assess. You said there as well about that, that movement of grain. Um, what, what were you hearing there in, in terms of where you know grain will have to go and is there will trucks have to take different routes to get it to, to silos and to port? Yeah, certainly you know, there's concern, you know, particularly you know, there's still a fair bit of on-farm storage grain that hasn't necessarily been moved to port uh, at this point. Uh, and the challenge of uh, getting that moved in the next few months you know, as the roads network isn't necessarily up to standard to um, have the large trucks move over them. I imagine the effects of this will be felt for uh, for, for months and maybe even years for, for primary producers and, and locals in the region. Yeah, just talking with lo- some of the local councils here, you know, they're talking uh, a five-year program to bring the roads back up to scratch. Um, it's the sort of time frame they're envisaging it's going to take to, to get things back to normal. Will you push for funding for this this region to get help for these these yeah. primary producers? As I said, I think it's you know, just so early in the process that we need to actually understand where the damage is and what the damage is to work out you know, what needs to be done. So we need to, you know, it's one of the key things with uh, recovery is we actually understand what's actually happened before we can actually work out what to do. Um, so really important that we get this information in from producers um, so we understand exactly what sort of damage is out there. Minister for Primary Industries and Regional Development, David Basham, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And while we're speaking about this rain, an outback pastoralist says, despite being cut off from everything, recent rains are very welcome. 150 millimetres fell at Dalkanina Station in the state's far north on Friday. On top of the 150 mils they received earlier in the week, that's a total of 300 millimetres for what is a very dry part of the world usually. Pastoralist David Bell says flooded roads and paddocks mean they'll be cut off for about three weeks, but he told Gillian area they're prepared and have everything they need. In the last seven days, we've had 259 mils. It's really good for us. It's yeah, like oh, there's a little bit of damage now in terms of some fencing and some road damage internally for us and those sort of things. But yeah, look overall, it's it's really good. You'd rather have the rain, so it's fantastic. In terms of what you'll have to do with to deal with the damage, I know it's part of, of the whole thing. What is involved? Oh, well, look, you know, we're obviously cut off at the moment. We're a little bit isolated in terms of the roads just because of the, the, the creeks that are down and the water levels and things like that. So getting food in and those sort of things, if, you, if you're needing food and them sort of things would be quite, uh, would be a little bit more difficult. You have to, um, you know, maybe fly, uh, fly them in. We're not, we're not in that situation at the moment. We're not too bad. So, but yeah, look, other situations might be different. But, yeah, we'll have some, you know, more fencing work to do, obviously, and some, some road works to do to... To repair some some road damage that we've had over the last twenty four hours. Mm. And how much food and stocks have you got? Have you guys got there to last for? Yeah, we've probably got a month worth of food and, and stuff here, so you know we'll be okay. Like we might run out of some things, but you, you know you'll have something else to replace with, I suppose. So look, you know we we won't be too bad here. And can you give us an idea about you know what the water level is like around the station? I don't know if you've been able to get eyes on on all of it, so. No, not heaps, mate. Look, we're you know we're hoping the next day so that we might be able to get some uh, get someone to fly us around a little bit. But yeah, look, the creek, our station creek's very very high at the moment. It's as as um, yeah, it'd be one of the bigger floods that we've had in it. So it's um, yeah, quite large. 
and yeah, look, we're not certain of the other creeks around, but just giving on the water that we've had here, you'd imagine that there's uh, the creeks and, and uh, the rain that's been around. It's obviously been, um, yeah, look, it's been very good, but there's obviously been a fair amount of it. So it's, it's got the creeks and those sort of things running quite big. Yeah, so just really sort of taking the wait and see approach to see when things start to settle. Or if you get more rain coming up, we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, you know, there's not much you can do at the moment. You mm-hmm. just have to make sure you, you know, you've, we've, you know, we've got food and water and those sort of things. So uh, we're all okay like that and everyone's safe and healthy and um, yeah, there's no danger at all. So we're just, um, yeah, sitting tight for a little bit till we can get out and um, assess things a bit. Hopefully we can, you know, the Department of Transport have, have are under control with it and I might have to, uh, you know, the government might chuck a little bit of extra money, some emergency funding at it and, and get those things sorted out and everyone can uh, can get back to it. What's the process to fix these roads? What actually happens between you, the town and, and Department of Transport? Oh, look, the Department of Transport are reasonably reasonably good at it. They've got people involved and they're, they're, they know the rain's been around and they've rang around us and, the, you know, the, the police have rang around in certain places to make sure everyone's okay and those sort of things, which has been fantastic. But, look, it's just... It's just whether they've got enough machinery and those sort of things to be able to fix everything fast just because of the, the region is quite large where they're trying to, you know, do all the work. So they, they may need to, to get some contractors in, whether that's, a you know, a station person or, you know, a towns person or whoever it is, just to try and get everything up to scratch so they can get these roads opened up and, and going. So that, look, that's the process. We just, we talk to those guys, we, you know, we, we know who they are and we have a chat to the, uh, to the Department of Transport and most times they're fairly good, they're, they're fairly open-minded and the job will get done and it'll be done... You know, it'll be done really well, but it's hard when it's like this just because of the, the distances that we're talking about, you know what I mean? That's just, it makes it really hard, so they've got to try and, and uh, you know, gather some resources to be able to make sure the job gets done quickly and, and safely. And, and in terms of a time period, you know, how long are we looking at minimum for when things can, can get back to normal? Look, it's a little bit, like, there's probably two aspects of it. There's probably a short term where it might be a couple of weeks, you'd sort of say, where people can try and just to get things opened up and just to be able to get, you know, roads so people can get some access here and there to be able to move around again. And then it's probably, and there might be some longer term stuff, which, you know, to try and fix things so they're better than they were last time, which could take up to six months, I suppose. Duncan in the station, pastoralist David Bell speaking with Gillian Area about that situation in the uh, north of the state. Uh, Duncan in the station, you know, 300 millimetres has fallen in the past week or so. Huge amount of rain. Hopefully it does more good than harm with the, those fences obviously being a bit of a concern, weeds, etc. But uh, it's good to have uh, rain at this time of year to set that part of the world up. So hopefully it's more good news than bad news. For people who aren't as well set up as the Bells, an emergency delivery of essentials like milk and meat will reach Pakuba Pedi later today, which remains isolated after being inundated with floodwaters. An Australian Defence Force flight has left Adelaide with about 20 tonnes of food and supplies on board. The Stewart Highway remains under half a metre of water at Glendambo, stopping travel between Adelaide and the Northern Territory. Rail lines to the NT and, w- and WA are also under repair as well. And the flood-stricken north is preparing for more extreme weather. We'll get into that shortly with the weather forecast. But in the meantime, Army Brigadier Graham Goodwin says this is the first of many RAAF flights due to land shortly. There'll be a number of uh, rotations today, uh, at least four, uh, and at least two uh, more rotations tomorrow. Mm. Uh, and, and then, you know, that's, that's the initial uh, plan, and then it will be assessed from there. What are you delivering? 
all different types and quantities of of uh, foodstuffs, perishable uh, and non-perishable, I, I believe. But in relation to the food side of the house, I mean, we leave that very much to the planners for and who are in very close contact with the local uh, supermarket and suppliers up in, in Cooper Pedy. So uh, we're, we're the delivery mechanism, uh, but we're very happy to assist in this regard. Okay. And that should be arriving in Cooper Pedy when? It's a very good plane. It's a very it's a fast plane. So I expect early in the afternoon. And as I say, there's going to be uh, four plane loads go up at least today. Look, we um, we've been uh, working with the SES now for probably the last three or four days from a planning point of view. So we are in support of, of our state emergency services, uh, and we assist uh, where and when we can. And, you know, I sit on all the briefs and I listen to all of the information that comes out and Cooper PD and the people in those regional areas has been uppermost in in those briefs going forward. Army Brigadier Graham Goodman, Goodwin, I should say, speaking with David Bevan on ABC Radio Adelaide. Hopefully they get what they need. There was a bit of concern there, but it sounds like help is on the way. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is 17 minutes past 12. Are you cool? Let's do it. The national broadcaster, Mardi Gras. What a match made in heaven. In 2022, the ABC has so much to celebrate. Happy birthday, ABC! Connecting Australians for 90 years with the biggest and best Aussie content. Your mum and my dad are cooking up something big. It's like you're a part of a big family. Together we could do something extraordinary. Connecting with you in 2022. We're both gorgeous old girls. ABC, 90 years. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, before I get to whether a new research project could provide evidence of insider trading in the water market, using transaction data from state water registers, the University of Adelaide's Alec Zoe is exploring the efficiency of water markets, particularly the impact of trade by non-landholders. He told Eliza Berlage the project will be useful for policymakers. Previously, our research has found some evidence of insider trading quantitatively from the transaction record prior to 2014. And after 2014, after the insider trading regulations was there, we found less evidence because of this will cause some bargaining power because if one side of the transaction has more information and the other side has less information, then this will create information asymmetry and also will cause bargaining power which um, distort the market and um, disadvantage of certain stakeholders. We want to look at this aspect and by exploring uh, a range of characteristics, whether this will lead to bargaining power or not. Why this research now? Irrigators in the Maritime Basin, uh, they are very supportive and um, uh, our previous survey are quite well received. So in this round, we uh, intend to use secondary data from the water registers, so the uh, state water registers, they collect the transaction data. So we have the, the transaction of each trade, and then we have the characteristics of the trader, like whether they are a landholder or not, and whether and they are a trust or single um, ownership of the farm. So these characteristics are also in the database. So basically, when these data sets are available, then this enable us to look at these questions. And also last year, the ACCC has done an inquiry and a lot of the 
topics, issues around market power and also efficiency of the water market and some rules or uh, regulations should be brought in to uh, regulate. So I guess this will also indicate now it's critical time to look at these issues. Well, we've had a lot of rain, there's been La Nina, and it's often said that when there is uh, lots of rain, uh, good water flow, it's hard to get attention and attraction to discussions about the Murray-Darling Basin, hard to get policymakers um, talking about it. But then when we have incidents like droughts and mass fish kills, that's when politicians come out and talk more about water issues. Are you hoping that you can yet yeah, still be able to get attention in you know, a time when things are going well? Um, well, this is just starting of our project. So given the climate pro- in the next few decades, well, it's a, it's a higher probability that we will have more period of um, higher temperature and a drought in the horizon. So it's more important that we prepare in advance and look at these issues when it's a good time and then when the drought hits and then or when water scarcity actually arises more in the future. And then we have this uh, plank of insights and uh, policy implications to join and to make more sound and policies or regulations. There's a review of the Basin Plan in two years' time. Is it likely that any of your research findings might be ready for that review or able to be considered for that? Yes, uh, like our timeline is by 2023, end of 2023, so next end of next year, we would have some preliminary results on the um, impact of non-landholder participation in water markets as well as the impact of water ownership characteristics on bargaining power in markets. Originally, we also planned to look at the impact of water form reforms rural communities um, in the basin, but we may not be able to finish this uh, in full because of the funding is less than what we requested. So we have to drop some of the original research objectives in the proposal. But um, for the basin plan, our main two research questions will be ready there. But as I know, the basin plan is more, it's broader than the water market. It's also about the government um, environment, water buyback, and also the infrastructure and um, projects uh, as well. We are looking at this in our other research projects as well. But I think those research output will also fit into basin plan uh, providing evidence. University of Adelaide Associate Professor from the Centre of Global Food and Agricultural Business, Alex Zoe, speaking with Eliza Berlage. Led across to the Weather Bureau now, where I'm joined by Senior Forecaster Vince Rollins. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Now, it's not quite as humid today. Has the humidity finally left South Australia? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it has left in, in some parts over the south of the state, but we're getting a little bit of an infeed of moisture again extending over some of the western parts so down to around Sejuno maybe not maybe not quite reaching Woodner but uh, certainly over Sejuno maybe Port Augusta we are seeing that uh, humidity just coming back down but certainly further south not as humid and over the next few days we will see um, the high pressure system that is going to move into the bite uh, just pushing those southeasterly winds further north so we will see uh, gradual uh, drying out of conditions so by the time we get to um, probably Wednesday still a little bit of humidity in the far northeast but uh, then as we head into Thursday and over the weekend yeah we're looking at how much dry conditions right throughout the state so 
um, some relief on the way from from those people that still feeling a bit of uh, humidity um, yeah. today and it has been very unusual and um, I'm sure a lot of South Australians aren't used to it so we much prefer those drier summer days rather than the the, the pretty humid conditions that we have uh, seen over the last week. It's been rather sticky, but you've got <clears throat> quite a few warnings out at the moment, so it seems like there's a lot happening in weather. What's <clears throat> going on? Ah, uh, there is. So we're, again, we're seeing, still seeing those, uh, you know, reasonably significant falls up in the north. So just having a look uh, over the weekend, we did see some pretty good falls over parts of the pastoral districts. Uh, Todd Morden ended up with 63 millimetres over the three days to 9am this morning. Moomba 48.2 and a few other locations in that sort of 10 to 30 millimetre range over the weekend. But really expecting some uh, more intense conditions to develop uh, during this afternoon, particularly over the northwest pastoral district. So we do have uh, We've still got the flood watch out, we've got the flood warning for Cooper Basin and we've just issued a severe weather warning for heavy rainfall over parts of the northwest pastoral district and sort of western parts of the northeast pastoral district and that's likely to extend further north and further east over the next 24 hours or so. So I think that warning's probably going to stay out for uh, a reasonable length of time as we are expecting um, the activity that does develop today to continue uh, across the north and as I mentioned just extending further east and, and starting to affect the, the far northeast of the state as well. So certainly uh, there is potential there to see some pretty pretty good w- falls. I mean looking at widespread falls in the north of probably 30 to 80 millimetres with some more localised heavier falls getting up to around that 120 millimetre mark but uh, the we could see some falls getting up to around 200 millimetres with the more intense thunderstorm and, and heavy rain that we are expecting over the next 24 hours or so. So, yeah, pretty uh, significant event again for for South Australia in uh, January, which is usually pretty dry, but we have seen a pretty wet one so far this year. But <coughs> relief is on the way, as I mentioned. Once we get that high-pressure system becoming the dominant feature, it is going to push that... Um, sort of tropical moisture further north so we will see those drier conditions uh, extending uh, throughout the state by uh, yeah, sort of Thursday so uh, good relief for those people up in the north and hopefully we uh, get some a good length of uh, dry weather across that region and hopefully see things drying out a little bit over the next uh, week or two so yeah keep uh, an eye on uh, the weather up in that area for the next few days now we do have some coastal wind warnings as well and that's due to this high pressure system moving across as well but it's basically just for for tuesday and then we see it uh, just contracting to the western western coast and then easing as that high just weakens and moves east so uh, temperatures still pretty hot today uh, across the region, but we will see a, a gradual cooling of temperatures as those winds swing around to the southeast, um, and that'll be for the up until around the, the the latter part of the week, and then we'll see uh, another warming trend as we head towards the weekend as the winds swing around to the northeast. But not seeing really significant temperatures. We will get uh, some temperatures in some parts into the mid 30s, but not likely to see uh, temperatures getting much hotter than that as we go through the forecast period. So, yeah, getting rid of that humidity. Unfortunately, still a lot of rainfall uh, expected over the north of the state, but uh, certainly some drier, cooler conditions for 
uh, us heading our way towards the, the end of next week and then some more hot weather coming over the weekend, Cassie. So certainly it has been a pretty interesting January. Uh, it's certainly going to finish up that way and the start of uh, February is going to be pretty interesting for parts of the north as well. I'll be interested to see the rainfall totals, how they compare to the uh, long-term averages and even the, um, the maximums that have been received in January because some areas have oh, yeah. cracked it. It will be. It'll be really interesting. We'll get, uh, obviously, a summary of that, hopefully, in the next couple of days when they, the climate people put all those numbers together. But, uh, yeah, it, it is going to be really interesting to see uh, what sort of totals, um, from a statewide perspective, we get. But also, I mean, we know we've already broken records on an individual basis. But, uh, yeah, from a statewide perspective, it, it will be really interesting to see how we go for January this year. Thanks so much for your time today. Vince Rollins there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. And as he mentioned there, there is a severe thunderstorm warning with that heavy to intense rainfall developing in the northern pastoral districts this afternoon. Going to the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be hot tomorrow and partly cloudy. There is a medium chance of showers in the west, but only a slight chance elsewhere. There could also be a bit of a thunderstorm in the west as well. It could get quite heavy, so be careful there. Overnight temperatures will fall to the mid to high 20s, but the daytime temperatures will reach 28 to 38 degrees. The lower western will be partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of showers in the north, but only a slight chance elsewhere and perhaps even a thunderstorm as well. Overnight, we'll get down to the low to mid 20s, but the daytime temperatures will reach around 30 degrees. It's coming up to 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hi, I'm so glad you could join me this afternoon. Today I'm going to tell you about the end of an era in South Australia's pastoral industry. S. Kidman & Co. has sold off the last of its pastoral land in South Australia. I'll tell you more about the giant sale soon. It was really wonderful to see local industry operators really step up and expand their enterprises and, and acquire the assets. I'll have more on that soon. And the work of hundreds of volunteers this summer to collect seagrass fruit and the seeds has come to a conclusion. I'll tell you just how much benefit their work has had on Adelaide's ocean environment. And another Australian abattoir has been banned from exporting to China. I'll tell you more soon, but first to news with Emma Ribolato. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. Supermarkets in Cooper will soon be able to restock empty shelves. The Defence Force is about to take in 20 tonnes of food and other essentials on six flights over the next couple of days. Cooper Pedy and other communities are still cut off by floodwaters and the region is expecting another deluge this week. Beijing has sealed off several residential communities after two cases of COVID were found and they're setting up areas to test residents every day. China has a zero-tolerance policy as it prepares to host the Winter Olympics starting Friday. Spotify says it's working to add a special advisory notice to any podcast that includes talk about COVID. The move comes after top musicians pulled their music from the online streaming service in protest against its work with US podcast host Joe Rogan, who has suggested the young and healthy should not get vaccinated. And A-League soccer club Western Sydney Wanderers has appointed Mark Rudan as head coach of the club's men's team for the rest of the season. The Wanderers are second from bottom on the ladder and sacked coach Carl Robinson yesterday. We'll have more news at one.
Thanks for that, Emma Ribolato there with your news headlines. Now, another Australian abattoir has been banned from exporting to China. Meat processing giant Tees has been informed by Chinese authorities that its Naracourt plant, which had a, a profile uh, of COVID outbreak this summer, has been temporarily suspended from exporting to the nation. Warwick Long is speaking here with Simon Quilty, an analyst with Global Agritrends, about the situation. Late on Friday night... The GACC of China, which is the General Administration of Customs of China, issued a notice saying that the Tees Cargill Naracourt plant had had its license suspended to China, which as a result of that, they will not be accepting shipments from that plant after January the 29th. Now, just for context, can you tell us about the Tees plant at Naracourt, how big it is and, and how much of a blow that could be? So the teas plant is around about 500 to 600 head per day uh, and beef only. In terms of the overall percentage of the trade into China, it's pretty small. It makes up around 5% of the total trade. And I think just to put that into context, that this delisting is one of 138 that has occurred globally around the world since the middle of 2020, Warwick. Tees has uh, acknowledged the suspension and released a statement saying, and I'll quote, Tees Australia confirms its Naracourt processing facility has been temporarily suspended from export to China. The official notification does not provide a specific reason for the suspension, which is normal practice. Simon, you just said it's it's part of a, a wider global list of suspended abattoirs, a, a substantial amount of that, from uh, including many other Australian abattoirs as well. Does the market know what the reason would be for this suspension from China? Warwick, it really is a matter of trial by media. So we know that in mid-January, that that plant with these, that there was some publicity around it regarding supply chain issues with within you know the um, the current environment of um, you know what we're all going through in terms of reduced labour etc. So the COVID so, pandemic impacting its its workforce. That's right, and so what we've ended up here is as I said, trial by media. So, my so, so Chinese position... authorities uh, are reading media reports of, of some cases in, in abattoirs and deciding to ban arbitrarily there. Does that mean that the meat industry won't be keen on publicising when cases are in Australian abattoirs in future? I think there is a, an important need to manage that. And it's not just Australia. Right across the world, you know, the meat industry in all countries have realised that it's trial by media. And this is the ninth plant in Australia to have lost its licence. Um, the, only the third one, though, related to this type of uh, suspension. The other six or so have been due to technical reasons, such as um, poor paperwork or very, very minor details that you know, probably does have a political bias towards that in terms of Australia's relations. But in this situation, it's almost as if an arm of of the Chinese government is acting independently. And what's interesting to note, when we spoke of those global delistings, 138 has occurred since the middle of 2020, but the rate of delistings has actually fallen dramatically 
in the last six months. So six months ago, there were 11 plants per month on average globally being delisted. And now it sits at four. And I would like to say that within six months, this policy by GACC will be almost obsolete. The World Health Organization continues to say there are no known cases of anyone contracting COVID from food or food packaging. And that is the heart of this, what I would say, becoming quickly an obsolete policy by China. And to me, you know, within six to 12 months, we won't even be talking about this. I think that unfortunately, due to the media attention that was given during the middle of January, that we saw, you know, it was almost as if they couldn't ignore it. And I just think it's unfortunate that due to trial by media, that teas have been caught up in this situation. Analyst with Global Agritrends, Simon Quilty, speaking with Warwick Long and Tease Australia has confirmed that the processing facility has been temporarily suspended from export to China, but the official notification does not provide a specific reason for the suspension, which is normal practice. Now, staying with, uh, I guess, beef, but in a different way, Hancock Agriculture and S. Kidman & Co. have entered into contracts to sell Inaminka Station and Macumba Station in South Australia's north, as well as a 20,000 head feedlot in the Northern Territory to Crown Point Pastoral. Now, Crown Point Pastoral is a joint venture between the Oldfield and Costello families. The sale ends S. Kidman & Co.'s long ownership of pastoral land in South Australia, with just the Tungali feedlot and the head office in Adelaide left. The sale comes after the company offered seven properties for sale early last year. Elders Executive General Manager of Real Estate, Tom Russo, explains why these two properties were not part of that original offering. Genuinely, at the start, they were not on the market, and um, it, it almost happened organically through the process. You know, we, we were speaking to dozens and dozens of, of interested buyers in the Hancock portfolio, and and as quite often happens, a number of them expressed interest in properties outside the portfolio, a bit cheeky, just to see what what could happen. And Inaminka and Macumba certainly received a lot of attention from a number of buyers and um, as a result of that um, our client ended up deciding to to run a short off-market process with a couple of well-qualified parties to see um, what the outcome of that would be and, and in the end an acceptable offer was made and it was sold. So it just happened through the course of discussions um, with a number of parties and um, the, the vendor in the end um, deciding to um, allow a process to occur. These are huge properties. Inaminka is 1.3 million hectares. Macumba is 1.1 million hectares. How much did they sell for? <laughs> I knew you'd ask that question. So unfortunately, I, I really couldn't couldn't say what any of the properties transacted for. Those those um, prices are commercial in confidence. What I will say is that I think this sale should flag to the broader industry just how confident they should be and and. Uh, particularly in, in the value of their asset. I think the seasonal conditions, the high commodity prices, um, the level of interest that we received was really extraordinary. And I think the prices, whilst fair, uh, uh, still reflect a, a very healthy outcome um, for the vendor. And I think that just reflects the ongoing confidence in the industry. There's obviously scale there within Aminka and Macumba Station in South Australia, but this is Channel Country, which is in the far northeast of South Australia. How much interest is there in that part of the world that, that is a very boom-bust sort of a, a region? I would say that right now it's the strongest it's been for a very long time. 
certainly sort of through my tenure in the industry, I can't believe the amount of um, inbound inquiry I'm getting from partialists in the region but also out of the region just ringing me saying, are there any other opportunities? The, the consistent conversation that I'm getting from people is that, you know, aside from seeing, you know, being interested in the properties and wanting to run them, it's certainly a view that there's probably still some value through the channels. And I think it's reflective of the fact that central Queensland, western Queensland have had some pretty astronomical price increases through those regions. And people, and, and there's short supply um, of properties in those regions. And so a lot of people are looking a little further outside of their, you know, their immediate districts and they're looking at the channel country and saying, well, look, there could be some opportunities there. Um, I, I think personally that's what's driving it. And I understand that Inaminka and Macumba were a part of the S. Kidman and Co. properties that Hancock Agriculture acquired in 2016. But since then, uh, a number of those properties have been sold off. And I understand that this sale marks the last of the S. Kidman and Co. properties in South Australia being sold off. How significant is that from a historical point of view? Oh, look, I probably confess that I'm not a real student of history, but um, clearly there, there's a huge, huge and long and proud history from S. Kidman in, in building that portfolio. I think there are still there is still the Tungali feedlot asset in South Australia and Kidman still have their office here. Um, I'm based out of Adelaide. I would say that it's probably significant in the context of the history of S. Kidman & Co., but I think in terms of the history of these properties, gee, what a wonderful outcome to see some, some Australian family enterprises step up and buy these assets. And, and that's I believe that all of these properties have been bought by Australian interests. Yep, that's right. I think when, when we first took on this project and started working with Hancock on it, our very clear instructions from the most senior people at Hancock was that the, the process needed to be structured in a way that allowed all categories of buyers to participate. And by that I mean you know, we could have gone down a process of just offering the assets in one line, which probably would have ruled out you know, a lot of local operators and would have seen you know, really played into the hands of you know, multinational fund managers and so on. And whilst we very much welcome their interest and they and they did participate in the process, you know, our vendor was very clear that they wanted to ensure that all interested parties would be given the opportunity to do so. And and as it pans out, you know, it was it was really wonderful to see local industry operators really step up and expand their enterprises and, and acquire the assets. In total, about three point seven eight million hectares have changed hands. Now that is roughly the size of Bhutan, a little bit less than the area of Switzerland, a little bit more than the Netherlands. So this is a huge amount of land that has been sold. What is the future for Hancock Agriculture given this this huge sell-off of property? Yeah, look, it, it is a massive piece of land and no one's going to deny that and, and, and a huge transaction. But when you look at it um, in the context of Hancock Agriculture's broader portfolio, you know, it, it, it it, you know, yes, there's a lot of land that's been sold, but in terms of their beef production capacity, they're still one of the largest um, beef producers in Australia. They're still acquiring properties. Um, they've recently acquired another property in Queensland, and I know that, you know that they very much have a strategy of continuing to build out their portfolio, um, particularly, albeit not exclusively, down the eastern seaboard. Elders Executive General Manager of Real Estate, Tom Russo, speaking there. And a couple of pet stations still remain on the market. It is 17 minutes to one. 
You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. The dry north of the state to the beaches and Adelaide's great seagrass seed hunt is over for another year. 15,000 seagrass fruit have been gathered from Adelaide's beaches and the seeds from that fruit has, have been sown into sandbags and returned to the ocean to restore Adelaide's seagrass meadows. Ausfest Senior Program Manager for South Australia, Dr Michael Serp, has headed up the project. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So this is the second year the project has run. Sounds like it's been rather successful. Yes, Cassie, we've had a great year. Um, We've had more volunteers. We've uh, harvested more fruits off the beach. We've processed those fruits, obviously, into more seeds, so 15,000 seeds this year, and we've put uh, 500 sandbags out into Gulf St Vincent to grow uh, seagrass this year, which is um, our great achievement by all our volunteers and supporters. So those 500 sandbags, how much area will that rehabilitate back to seagrass meadows? Well, we've done um, 300 sandbags last year. So with the 500 sandbags that we've done this year, we're edging towards um, a magical one hectare in our first uh, first two years. So we'll build from that. Continue, we're continually building the project and making it larger. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're really happy that we're sort of edging towards that one hectare of seagrass this year um, in those areas which have uh, been degraded of their seagrass. Why is this restoration work important? Uh, seagrass is one of the most dynamic ecosystems on earth. It's um, an extremely good carbon sink, one of the best there is. Um, it uh, obviously supports a whole range of, of species, including um, commercially important species like blue crabs and uh, King George whiting, um, obviously juvenile snapper and uh, the whole ecosystem there underwater. Um, it also holds back uh, the sand movement down the beach, which we know is a, a huge problem for Adelaide. So all the um, collaborative work that's being done by uh, government scientists and um, uh, volunteer organisations like Ausfish um, is fantastic right around Australia because we're all making a huge difference towards not only the um, trophic ecology in these aquatic ecosystems, but a whole range of, of extra added benefits like you know, the blue carbon for climate change and the sand movement, um, also nutrient sequestration as well. I know this is only your second year, but have you seen an improvement in fish numbers or the general ecology as a result of this work? I'd say, look, we have actually gone and had a look at some of the sandbags and it was really interesting to see that the seagrass has actually grown. Um, It takes a number of years before a seagrass meadow will really take off from these sort of plantings. Um, But it was really good to see um, a lot of species actually using the sandbags, um, their hessian sacks, which obviously compost down to become nothing, um, which is why we use them. Um, But we've noticed even some, we've got some great footage on our, uh, some video footage that I took, which shows that blue crabs and red crabs are using them as habitat and even fighting over over that habitat um, as something they can use um, for, I guess, breeding grounds and, and just feeding. And there's a lot that goes into this project, a lot of renewable elements, including your bags this year, I believe. Uh, yes, it's been fantastic. Um, we've combined forces with the EPA of South Australia again this year, who've been really integral um, this year, who've uh, given us um, some... Uh, basically, we've, we've always thought about this, but they've actually helped us to use... Um, some uh, recycled coffee bags from the coffee industry, which is um, a new element to what we're doing. So um, we've trialled using the um, the coffee, the Hessian sacks that we've had to purchase, um, which matches up with the SARDI method developed by the South Australian Research and Development Institute down there at West Beach. And we've 
adapted it into using uh, a trial of uh, recycled coffee bags, which is really a great sort of um, green innovation if we can if we can make that work in the future. It would be amazing to see these seagrass meadows expand and support more life. Um, but I'm glad it's been successful. I know a lot of volunteers, it's, it's not the hardest day at the beach uh, collecting uh, your, your seagrass seeds, I can't imagine, but it's great that people are out there helping you out this year. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, Cassie. Ausfish Senior Program Manager for South Australia, Dr Michael Serp, there speaking about the Seeds for Snapper project that's just wound up uh, in Adelaide. It was a summer project getting these seeds back out to the ocean to support the uh, ecosystem out there. And while I'm speaking about this and, and uh, blue carbon, which Dr Michael Serp referenced there as uh, being a, a sink, uh, the, the seagrass being a sink as part of uh, blue carbon, owners of marginal farming land in low-lying coastal areas around the country are being urged to consider consider opening the floodgates and refilling swamps. A world-first blue carbon accounting system backed by the federal government can calculate the amount of carbon sequestered when tidal zones are returned to their natural state. As Bruce McKenzie reports, that could see landowners earning carbon credits for allowing low-yield land to be swamped by seawater. Carbon credits are becoming big business in Australia, where the price paid for a local unit has shot up from about $16 to around $50 in the last year. Now the owners of low-lying coastal farmland have the chance to make their mark on the market. More than a dozen academics from universities across Australia have worked to create what's being hailed as the world's first blue carbon accounting model. Among them is Dr James Sippo from the Southern Cross University, who's come up with a model to calculate how much carbon can be captured on a particular piece of land. So if you think of all the sugarcane land and marginal coastal land, which is used for grazing, which is low-lying and really swampy, that was historically drained. So normally seawater in a natural system, seawater would come a lot further into the coastal area. So basically landowners who have that land can now reopen their floodgates, which is not a big mechanical procedure, and allow seawater to come back in, and that will immediately start increasing the carbon uptake of that coastal land. Dr Sippo says ecosystems such as mangrove swamps can take up three to four times as much carbon as the same area of tropical rainforest. He says the blue carbon accounting method works on an average of about 15 tonnes of carbon per hectare per year, although that figure can vary depending on local conditions. We've developed a model that has data from all of the different areas and we have a lot of different options that the model allows for. So there are different models for each climate zone in the country and so landowners will pick their model for their climate zone and then they'll put in the variables of their land and it will kind of predict what the vegetation will turn into on on that land and will calculate credits quite simply for landowners. The Federal Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, says the scheme is exciting. These are projects that abate carbon, but they also improve the local environment. We will be creating credits for those initiatives, and those credits can be purchased either by the government through the Emissions Reduction Fund, or increasingly we're seeing them purchased privately. But Polly Hemming, who's an advisor in the Australia Institute's climate and energy team, has some reservations about the scheme. She says with sea levels predicted to rise, there's a danger some projects will be allocated carbon credits for changes that might occur naturally. So I'm not saying it's not a good thing. I'm just saying it's very hard to measure with certainty the amount of carbon that's actually being stored and then credit those projects with carbon credits. 
accurately. She also says that flooding the market with more carbon credits could be counterproductive. There's a relative scarcity of Australian carbon credits units in Australia, that we call them ACUs for short. So they are in high demand. Bear in mind that also those cheaper international units are in demand as well. So people are often buying those because ACUs are too expensive for them. They're too prohibitive. The government is actually planning on increasing the supply of carbon credit units. So they're they're fast-tracking new methods. They're registering a whole lot of new projects. So that long-term supply issue is not necessarily going to be an issue in the long term. The idea of carbon markets is that the price of credits becomes so high because there's a scarcity that you then rely on those other decarbonisation methods. But If the government does increase supply, as it said multiple times it's going to, then that's not necessarily going to be uh, an incentive to decarbonise anymore because it's theoretically possible that carbon credits will then become more affordable again or the price will drop relative to what it would have been. Advisor with Australia Institute's climate and energy team, Polly Hemming, ending that report by Bruce McKenzie. It's eight minutes to one. Ready for some new adventures? Backroads is back. From the macho mining town of Tom Price in WA to outback Queensland and Tasmania's Cradle Mountain, join me, Heather Hewitt, and some of my fellow guest explorers for a journey to some of this country's most remote towns full of surprising and memorable characters. All new Backroads. New adventures Monday nights on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Well, there's nothing like community spirit in the toughest of times, and that spirit starts young in Cummins on the Eyre Peninsula. Because when Ellie Mulroney's friends' homes were destroyed during last week's storms, the seven-year-old rolled her sleeves up to help. Ellie wanted to find a way to fundraise for the people she knew who had lost everything. And Brooke Nindorf caught up with her at her stall set up selling goodies to the locals. We've got a little shop here f- with food and some stuff that we've made for donation. And who are you raising money for? We're raising money for the people people's, whose houses fell down in the storms. And what made you want to help out with raising some money for them? It's because they were my friends and they're on my bus. So you thought you might help them out? Yeah. What have you got here that you're selling at your stall? We've got biscuits, slices, cupcakes, rocks, bracelets and chocolate, um, Rocky Road and, yeah, home crackles. And did you make all this yourself? Not all of it. My friends Lacey, Stevie and my brother Caleb made some of it as well. And what's been the best seller? Um, It's probably the cupcakes. And have you been making lots of money from the Cummins community? Yeah. Do you know how much you might have made yet? More than 600. Wow, that's a pretty good effort. How does it make you feel to help out someone that's had a few troubles lately? Really good because they're really nice friends and stuff. Uh, Josie Hammond, I live here in Cummins. Josie, what do you think of the, the kids' stall? I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea that they can think that there's not many ways that they can help, but this is absolutely brilliant. Yes, and I hope people support them. Yes, no, it's beautiful. Emma Gale from Commons. 
Cummins is always known as that can-do community and it's no surprise that this is happening today, pretty much straight after the, the things that have happened over the last couple of days. But to see kids this age, what, what does that mean to, to you as a Cummins local? Pretty inspiring, actually. Like To see a girl like Ellie, you know, six, seven years old, that's come up with an idea to support families in her community, it just shows like the great mentors that she's got around her and the great people that she's got around her that are teaching her kindness above all and looking out for each other is so important. If we could have a whole community of kids that thought like this, imagine where we'd be in 10 years' time. It would be amazing. And I was pretty impressed to see a local person rock up with $50 and buy a glitter rock. <laughs> I'm Belinda Moroni and I live at Capini. Well, Belinda, first of all, what was the, the thought process from Ellie uh, the last couple of days? when Did she come to you and say, I want to help out? Or how can I help out? What's, what's been happening? We had a little chat yesterday morning about her friends who'd lost their houses and we were kind of feeling a bit helpless and talking about what we could do to help. And we thought we could do a bake sale and so we started making some cookie ingredients knowing that the power wasn't on and then all of a sudden it came on and the kitchen was a disaster zone for a while. And not only donations here but uh, from, from right around uh, South Australia you put something on Facebook and, and people jumped on board straight away. I guess that just goes to show the the community spirit and, and we, we see it quite often here on the Air Peninsula but I guess right across the rest of the state as well. Yeah, I specifically notice it in Cummins a lot. Like yesterday some houses were starting to get flooded and anyone who was in town was helping out and often there's drama that will happen through the town and people are quick to put tools down and go and help whoever they need to help and yeah, it just makes you feel pretty good inside. Ellie's mum, Belinda Moroni from Capini, speaking with Brooke Nindorf. And you can read more and see pictures from the day online. And as of Friday afternoon, Ellie had helped raise about $2,600. I think $50 glitter rocks are probably a big part of that. But that's about all I have time for in the program today. There is expected to be a press conference with the Premier shortly. And Sonia Feldhoff will be right across that situation and we'll bring you all the latest details. She can also let you know what else you can catch up on the program this afternoon. Well, indeed, indeed. Now, we've, we've heard about um, kiss and drops at schools, but with the first day of school today, we're hearing about this thing called a drop and dash. I don't know what it is, and I'd love to know if this is something you've experienced at your school. I don't know if parents are just so sick of having kids home for the holidays that despite the new rules, maybe they're dropping kids off that aren't supposed to be there. That's the, that's the interpretation <laughs> I'm getting. It's like you deal with them. If you're a teacher or a parent who's having to deal with this today, I'd be very keen to hear from you. I hadn't actually even heard the term kiss and drop. I was like, is, is that a lol? Like, what, what yeah, is a kiss I've and drop? Yeah, I've got to say, I, when, I remember when I used to take my nephews to kindy for the first time or um, daycare. Uh, this thing, you know, go to the kiss and drop section. And I felt like the only person, you know, when you're the only one who doesn't know how things go, uh, yeah, it's this place where you stop and you can kiss them at that point. (laughs) And then they leave, yeah. Anyway, coming up on the show today also, um, we want to hear from you. We're going to check in on junk food ads and lifting the cost of your basic alcoholic drink. Is this going to make a future healthier for kids? That's certainly the suggestion of one group, and they're putting those 
election hopefuls or wish list uh, to the various political parties. So you debate whether that's going to make the kid the future healthier for our kids. And it's, yeah, it begins the ramp up to indeed, the uh, indeed state indeed election. Keep listening to ABC Local Radio. There's a lot coming up. Uh, Sonia Feldoff uh, has a full ticket to, to listen to this afternoon, but that's all I have time for this afternoon. Go to abc.net.au slash rural though if you'd like to catch up online. Right now it's coming up to one o'clock. Time for news. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.